Hi, this is Pastor Emily McGinley from Urban Village Church, Hyde Park, Woodlawn. If you've been to UVC, you'll know that we seek to be three things, bold, inclusive, and relevant. We know that there are countless folks across the country and out there in podcast land like yourself, seeking a message that will bring insight, hope, encouragement, and joy as we do this thing called faith. Please consider making a financial gift to help us with this work of inspiring, equipping, and sending out agents of gospel life and inclusive love. Just go to www.urbanvillagechurch.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening, and God bless. Our passage for today comes from Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46. Listen for what God is saying. Now when the human one comes in his majesty, and all his angels are with him, he will sit on his majestic throne. All the nations will be gathered in front of him. He will separate them from each other, just as a shepherd separates from the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right side, but the goats he will put on his left. Then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who will receive good things from my father, inherit the kingdom that was prepared for you before the world began. I was hungry, and you gave me food to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothes to wear. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then those who are righteous will reply to him, Lord, when did, we, when did we see you hungry or feed you, or thirsty or give you a drink? When did we see you as a stranger and welcome you, or naked and give you clothes to wear? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? Then the king will reply to them, I assure you that when you have done it for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you have done it for me. Then he will say to those on the left, Get away from me, you who will receive, terri- you who will receive terrible things. Go into the unending fire that has been prepared for the devil and his angels. I was hungry, and you didn't give me food to eat. I was thirsty, and you didn't give me anything to drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't welcome me. I was naked, and you didn't give me clothes to wear. I was sick and in prison, and you didn't visit me. Then they will reply, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and didn't do anything to help you? Then he will answer, I assure you that when you haven't done it for one of the least of these, you haven't done it for me. May God add a blessing to the hearing and living out of the scripture. Good morning, Urban Village Church. There I go. Six inches shorter than everyone else. Uh, Let's uh, begin with a word of prayer. God, we give you thanks for the gift that it is to come together um, in the glow of resurrection to be reminded that um, the work that we do, the lives that we lead do not end um, on Good Friday, but are just beginning. And so as we uh, begin this new sermon series about what does it mean to be your hands and feet in the world, we ask God that you would open our hearts and minds to receive what your word has to say to us today. So speak through me and maybe somewhat in spite of me um, and uh, help us to, to hear your, your word um, in fresh ways uh, in our spirit. And may we have the courage to live into whatever um, you may be leading us toward. We pray this with gratitude and in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So if you've ever been to a, a, a community organizing training, you might have heard um, a scenario something like this. You're standing by a river, uh, enjoying the view, seeing the water go by, um, taking the peacefulness, and then suddenly you see a baby. And it's alive, but barely. So you jump in, you swim out, you get that baby, you pull it out, and you're like, Phew, you know, wow, what a strange and scary experience. I'm glad I was there, right? 
And then you see another baby. So you run in and you, you go swim out, grab the baby, you bring it out, and then there's just more and more. And so you get like a group of people, come on, we gotta save these babies, what's going on? You know, we gotta save them and, and make sure that they don't drown. Um, but the babies just keep coming. So what should you do? Maybe, maybe you're like, let's build a net. You know, we can like catch all the babies all at once and pull them out. You know, that'll be much more effective. Maybe we could, you know, build a plank, you know, and, and scoop them out of the water. Um, you know, at some point, though, hopefully, someone begins to propose an idea. Hey, maybe we should check out what's happening upstream. Why are all these babies showing up in the first place? And that question, why? That is the question that will inevitably lead you to the work of justice in the world. It's a question that we at UBC have spent an enormous amount of time and energy and resources both trying to understand whether it's systemic racism or economic injustice or mental health, and, and also critically address them in conscious ways that are within our capacity. In other words, at UBC, we have spent a lot of time thinking upstream, and it's important, right? In fact, that's why we're trying to get as many folks as possible to set aside time on the 17th in a couple of weeks to show up and speak with our representatives in Springfield because we know that if we, if we pull a lever over here, do, you know, hundreds of lives can be changed as a result. We're committed to making changes at that kind of higher level because when you make these high-level changes, right, you, impact, you exponentially impact the circumstances of individual lives. But even as you go upstream, right, there's still the situation downstream. We can't just leave it unaddressed. And if there's anything that this passage has to say to us today, it's that downstream matters too. If upstream is the location of justice, then downstream is the location of service. And you need both. So these next few weeks, um, as you've heard already, we're going to spend a little, a little more time downstream than we usually do. If you or, or someone you know has ever experienced food insecurity or housing insecurity or healthcare insecurity or name your right here, right now need, then you know what it's like to really wish that there was someone in that moment who could give you a hand up. Then you know what it's like to not be able to wait until next week or next month or next year for the paperwork to go through or for that law to be changed, when your stomach is scratching, when your bills are due, when you have no place to rest your head that is safe tonight, waiting for change is not really an option. And so as we think about these real needs that are in real time, we're going to go back in time to hear from Jesus. The passage, in some ways, serves to sort of bookend Jesus' ministry as, as Matthew describes it in his gospel. He kicked it off uh, early on in, in, in the gospel uh, with what we call the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5, which is a, a fuller teaching of Jesus' vision and hope um, in ministry. And here, as, as uh, Jesus' story um, approaches its end, he's like, okay, folks, if you didn't catch me the first time around, let me make it plain for you because I don't have a lot of time left, Right? If you ain't feeding the poor, housing the homeless, clothing the naked, welcoming the stranger, caring for the sick, visiting the prisoners, you ain't done nothing for me, okay? After my death, don't be offering thoughts and prayers, and what I'm talking about is hands and feet. Thoughts and prayers are nice, but hands and feet are needed when lives are on the line right now, and the rubber has already hit the road. Jesus not only knew this, he experienced it himself. Throughout his ministry, Jesus chose to position himself vulnerably and rely on the hospitality of others in just about every other way. He consistently sided with those who were in the struggle. He could have easily lived 
a middle-class life, carrying forward the family trade of carpentry, a solid revenue stream, right? Everyone needs a few chairs. But even more than this, even as he gained following and notoriety in his solidarity with the poor and marginalized, Jesus never stopped pointing us toward them. Don't look at me, look at them, right? He consistently forced us to see the people that we have been trained not to see, those folks whose problems that we often try to make invisible, from the chronically ill and the mentally ill to the disenfranchised. Jesus made us see them and grapple with their lived realities. Our society does a good job of making the poor and outcast invisible, and we go along with it, right? How many times have I averted my eyes from a person who was needy, whether it was on the street, in the hallways, or just straight up in my life, right? And those are, are the ones we can't help but come across. But of course, there's a whole other underclass of folks who are systemically, systematically made invisible, whether it is undocumented workers kept in trailers in the middle of nowhere, or do domestic hospitality workers who stay behind walls in back rooms until we've left. These are some of the invisible people in our midst. One cohort of invisible people mentioned in this passage are the imprisoned. Now, some scholars suggest that one of the reasons why incarcerated persons show up in this passage is because at the time of this writing, there were lots of Christians who were being imprisoned by authorities. Showing up for the imprisoned really was about taking care of their own. And this can make it kind of seem like the only reason why we should care for anybody, right, is if they make the same profession of faith as we do. And there are some churches that actually uh, push that, right? Well, but in this situation, we have to kind of put ourselves in this moment of time, right? At the time of writing, it's not entirely untrue, actually, but, but that's because Christians were being imprisoned precisely because they were Christian, right? Another way to think about it is that if you were part of the um, Christian Lives Matter movement, you knew that you were going to be targeted for assault and harassment by police with a pretty high chance of finding yourself locked up. Christians were not just the underdog, right? They were the dog that got kicked to the curb any chance someone could get. Because they had few, if any, legal protections in their favor, they had to figure out how to take care of each other. And at that time, prison was a devastating, even deadly place for anyone. There were no guarantees of food or basic sanitation or health care. After incarceration, you were basically invisible and at the mercy of anyone who knew you or was willing to care for you, remember you. And so this kind of we take care of our own isn't quite the sort of uncomfortable, siloed tribalism that it might sound like on our end, right, for those of us who live in a society where Christianity is the norm, where it's the center. Reading this, then, in our modern context, the focus can, is about really kind of taking care of those who, like our ancestors of faith, those who were disproportionately vulnerable, those who had few legal protections, those who are, not, who are seen not only as valueless, but were actively despised. So that's the place that we're kind of locating um, what we mean when we talk about the imprisoned. Many things can change over time, but the imprisoned remain counted among those who would still fall in this category, right? We, have, um, we, have made, we might have some sense of the homeless experience. We might have even a sense of, of, the, of what the poor experience or, and what it's like to um, be hungry or, or um, sick without health care um, or just chronically ill. But for the imprisoned, it's still kind of something likely of a mystery, right? They are like physically removed out of social spaces. 
You may have read The New Jim Crow or watched the documentary 13th, which give really excellent insights for um, systemic injustice when it comes to incarceration. But this month, remember, we're looking downstream, right? Now, some of you might know that Brett O'Brien, one of our uh, uh, HP dubbers, uh, who works, uh, who, who is our Faith in Action team leader, is, um, he also works for the Cook County Jail, and I'm going to invite him up in just a second. Um, he teaches courses, or has been teaching courses, to help um, folks attain their G GED. And so, um, as I thought about the imprisoned and, and kind of like learning a little bit more about what is that experience like, um, I thought to, I asked him if he'd be willing to kind of give us a little bit of a closer look um, at what life in jail is like. So. Um, come on up, Brett. Now, Brett has actually recently, I just learned, um, transitioned to, into a different role with the organization he works for called the, the Safer Foundation. Um, now he works with those who are in transitional housing, right? Um, folks who are recently released um, who are then going to be trained in skills uh, like construction. I might be actually taking some of what you're saying. Um, but part of their program that he, uh, he has shifted into, it's part of their program um, requires them to still work toward getting a GED. And so, um, so he's continuing to teach. But up until a couple weeks ago, and, and for several years, you were working in the jail, right? So, so why don't you tell us a little bit of, of what jail is like? So the majority of the jail is set up in a pretty similar fashion. Um, there's a lot of buildings at the jail, but uh, in most of them, the places where people stay are called tiers. Um, and these consist of the cells for where the detainees stay and also a day room. Uh, the day rooms have a few tables and benches or chairs and a TV in them. Um, there's also showers out the day room as well. Uh, and then an officer sits right outside the tier to monitor all the activity inside. Um, the majority of people's time in jail is spent either in their cell or in the day room watching TV. Uh, except it's, uh, they block off local news. So whenever, I think it's like 1 o'clock, uh, the TV screens all like go black and white fuzz. Um, the, the tiers can hold up to about 48 people, uh, two per cell. Uh, so there's usually a lot of noise and chaos going, around, going on in the tier. Um, many, tr many people try and find excuses to get off the tier uh, because they, they're tired of spending so much time with the same people or you know, with so much noise and stuff like that. Um, as far as their schedules go, they get breakfast, lunch, and dinner all very early. Uh, breakfast usually comes around 4 or 5. Uh, and is usually some sort of either porridge or it's a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and that's just slipped through their, like, the slot in their cell door. Um, lunch usually comes around 10 or 11 and that's always the same. It's always uh, two pieces of bread, bologna, uh, an apple, and some chips. Um, then when dinner comes around, it's usually actually a prepared meal. Uh, that, that usually comes around 4 or 5 and that's, uh, I've never been there for that, but from what I see of the leftovers, uh, I would say that it's comparable to a lot of school lunches. Um, and as far as what happens during the day, uh, in the past couple of years, uh, there's been an increasing number of programs that happen. Uh, so people can t now take yoga. They can, uh, they can take classes to learn how to make pizza. They can, um, they can go to church. And they can, of course, come to school. Um, there are more programs offered for the women's division. They can also do dance class, music class, knitting, or even a book club. Um, but all these programs are voluntary. Uh, people can also go to the law library to research their case. Um, but for the most part, if people are not at court, they're just sitting on the tier um, unless they're signing up for some other program. So, so um, 
how would you describe the circumstances of some of the folks in jail? So one of the things that I learned in our work with the Community Renewal Society is that a lot of folks, particularly in the Cook County Jail, which is a little bit of a in-between space when folks have been arrested before they've been actually sentenced and had their case heard, um, they kind of find themselves in a bit of a limbo situation, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, the amount of time that people spend there really varies, uh, it, and it depends on the crime that they're being accused of. So, for instance, uh, minimum security detainees, which is usually drug-related cases, um, they might only be there for six to 18 months. Uh, this can extend to years for maximum security people, uh, which in most cases is murder, aggravated battery, sexual assault, things like that. Um, I've had some students in my class for uh, just over six years. Um, so, and in six all years the- waiting for a trial. Right, right. Um, yeah, I'd say the average uh, that I've seen is probably a couple of years that, that people are there. Um, and uh, for, the, for most people, the time that they're spending at jail counts towards their prison sentence if they get sentenced, uh, except for murder, which they have to serve the full time for that. Um, they can also get credit off their sentence if they uh, can show that they're making use of their time in jail. So like if, they're, if they can bring in their GED certificate or if they can bring in a certificate showing that they completed a class, they might get time off their uh, sentence. Um, but most people in jail, when they come there, they, they get set a bail amount. I mean, there's some people that don't, obviously, but uh, they don't, usually don't have enough money to pay that amount to get out, so that's why they're sitting there for so long. Um, they also don't have enough money to hire a lawyer, so they get assigned a public defender. Uh, from what my students tell me, the public defenders are often overworked, uh, and so they don't have a lot of time to spend on each individual case. So if there's something extra that they need to do to get their time verified or something like that, the lawyer might not get to that, uh, or they might not get to it in time before they get sentenced. Um, and just uh, that's generally because of the, a lot of the bureaucracy at the jail. Things have to pass through many people's hands in order to get to where it needs to go. So if someone wants to verify that their client has been in the GED program, it's usually about a three-week process to do that. Um, and all it is is faxing a form in to the jail, and we fax the thing back, and it takes three weeks. So uh, that's just, yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, lots of red tape, lots of waiting, mm -hmm. uh, with depending, regardless of how severe your crime was or wasn't. Mm -hmm. um, so I was kind of surprised actually a couple of years ago to learn that uh, Brett actually has a master's degree in accounting. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and you kind of did like a program where it was, it was like all together, right? Your undergrad and your, um, yeah. so why did you, like what prompted this shift or like why, did, why do you do this? Um, why is it important and why is it important to you? Uh, so I studied accounting in college and grad school uh, and people would ask me why I was doing that. And I would always say, well, I'm good at math, and you know there's always a job for an accountant out there, so I'll be good. Uh, but when I actually started working as an accountant, I thought it was awful. Uh, <laughs> uh, I hated sitting on a computer all day. I hated not talking to people unless I had a question. And the questions that I had, I thought, probably sounded stupid because everyone else knew the answer already. Uh, so um, I thought it was pretty miserable. I started looking for other things to do. Uh, that led me to a, a volunteer service program called the Episcopal Service Corps, 
Um, it's kind of like an AmeriCorps type thing. Uh, I ended up working at a halfway house uh, right by the United Center called St. Leonard's Ministries. Uh, they work with, it's a place for people coming home from prison where they can, they can take uh, high school classes, they can get, do job skills, um, stuff like that. Uh, so that got me interested um, in working with that population and doing that thing. Uh, when I started there, my job was a job developer, so I was supposed to be helping people out with their resumes and interview skills. Uh, but a month after I started, uh, their high school math teacher said he wasn't coming back that semester. Uh, so I said, sure, I'll do it. So uh, I jumped in, and I haven't looked back since. So uh, yeah, so I guess um, what led me to do what I do now and what, I, what keeps me there is uh, knowing that even though there's a lot of uh, that can be done to reform our criminal justice system, I think that knowing that I'm doing my part in trying to change that, I think, uh, satisfies me and actually being able to uh, directly benefit people with my math skills and other subjects too, but yeah. yeah. So in, not all of us can or are called, can or are called to teach in jails or, or, or do work that feels kind of directly, direct service-ish oriented, but um, we're all called to do something. Um, and that's, that's part of what, what is, what's kind of behind this scripture passage um, where we see Jesus kind of like, separating the sheep from the goats, and, you know, it'd be easy to get all salty about, like, Jesus being, like, you know, Judgy McJudgerson, right? But, but the reality for him is this, right? You, you might talk a good game, but it doesn't mean much if you're not actually doing anything in re with your life that sort of reflects those values. And, and, and this word that describes uh, the sheep, the ones who, live in, who lived into their profession, um, and not profession, but, like, the th their profession of faith, right? Um, the, the word that gets translated as righteous, di dikaioi, um, it's basically Tzedek 2.0. And if you recall from our Ash Wednesday service, which I know you all remember back in, Janu in February, um, you'll recall that Tzedek is the Jewish ethic, which basically says that what you say and how you do cannot be separated. You are accountable to the, the whole thing, right? Dikaioi is the Greek word that essentially describes the people who follow this Jewish ethic. They're the righteous. And, and this is what Je how Jesus is determining who are sheep and who are goats. Now, if you've been part of our starting point group, um, you'll, small group, you'll know that one of our guiding principles um, that we kind of talk a little bit about is, is this idea of doing all the good that you can. And the fuller statement, which is called the rule of life, often gets attributed to John Wesley, but is not written by John Wesley, so none of the historians here can ding me on this. Um, it's, it, it can be helpful for, for keeping things in perspective. Do all the good that you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as you ever can. We aren't responsible for all the things, right? But we are responsible for what is in our ability to do. At the end of the day, Jesus says, I was that person. I am that person. Whatever you did for them, you did for me. Whatever you did to them, you did to me. And this isn't about feeling guilty or killing yourself to save others. There's only one Jesus, and I'm pretty sure he actually didn't want it to end up that way, right? Instead, it's about opening ourselves to a life that chooses to see what we have been trained not to see, 
John kind of talked a little bit about that in his own testimony. It's about offering ourselves to God's service in the moment, even as we work upstream to meet the needs of those who can't wait who, who, to, to do that justice work, but also meeting the needs of people who can't wait for justice to touch their lives, right? It's about what we do after the thoughts and prayers that are kindly offered in the face of pain and justice. It's about what we do, it's about who we become, and after the death and resurrection of Jesus, moving from thoughts and prayers to hands and feet. Let's pray. God, we thank you that in some ways you have no body, no body but our bodies. And we thank you that you trust us and, and equip us with the things that we need to be your body in this world. So help us in whatever place or way that we are called to be your hands and feet, to meet the needs of those who are before us in the ways that we can, knowing that we are doing a part of what hopefully is something even bigger, working both downstream as well as upstream. And as we go into this month, focusing especially on what does it mean to engage in service work that is critically engaged and, and thoughtful. Um, grant us wisdom and insight and courage and tenacity and commitment. We pray all of this with gratitude and in the name of your son, Jesus, who showed us what it looks like to live a life of service and justice. Amen.